Hello and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affect and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Bentley Kaplan. Before we start the show today, I wanted to acknowledge two of our MSCI colleagues based in India that have recently lost their lives. And we extend our heartfelt condolences to their families and their loved ones in what must be an unimaginably difficult time. And that difficult news is no doubt playing out across many other companies, just like MSCI, that have found a happy home in India. So on today's show, we're going to talk to Ravi Sankar, an MSCI colleague based in India, who was kind enough to let us know how the team there has adapted to life under COVID-19 and how things stand as of this week, through a tragic and alarming second wave in the country. And after that, we'll take a look at the recent climate pledge by the US government to cut emissions in half by 2030, working from a 2005 baseline, and to hit net zero by 2050. We'll stick a toe into the dark arts of climate accounting and hopefully give you a healthy appreciation of why the assumptions and metrics hiding in the footnotes matter just as much as the reduction pledges themselves. Thanks for sticking around. Let's do this. For all of MSCI, our colleagues in India are very much the lifeblood of the company. I can very often make an educated guess when it's a holiday in India based on the traffic flow into my inbox. Which is why recent news about the unprecedented rise in COVID-19 infections and deaths has hit us unusually hard. On the 27th of April, new reported cases of COVID-19 in India were at 360,000. Deaths are exceeding 3,000 per day and neither trend has shown a clear sign of slowing. And the logistics of crisis in a country as big as India are daunting. In cities like New Delhi, healthcare facilities are overwhelmed. The ratios of those in need of medical care to the care available is frankly heartbreaking. Families face anguished choices about what to do with the bodies of their loved ones as makeshift funeral pyres are built in the streets and cemeteries cannot meet demand for those seeking burial. But news reports can only convey so much. So I called up Ravi Sankar, who heads up the corporate services team for Mumbai and our recently opened Pune office. Ravi was very generous with his time and gave me a sober rundown of the current status of things. Everyone's calling this the second wave. Early Feb, things were all fine. And uh, and even for, let's say, the Mumbai and Pune perspective, MSCI offices, we started discussing reopening, you know, when and what are the next steps and stuff like that. But then in a couple of weeks, situation changed and changed so dramatically. And that's what everyone's reading now, right? And uh, what we are now seeing across the country, but primarily Maharashtra, which is the state where Mumbai, Pune, uh, our offices are in, that state is the epicenter of the uh, infection at this time. The loss of colleagues has brought home the pandemic for many. For others, it has been the deaths of family members and friends, with so many unknown factors still lying ahead. And by now, It's been a long 12 months, or even more, since the initial lockdown started happening across the globe. In some ways, MSCI was fortunate in that it was theoretically possible to move a lot of jobs from the office and into people's homes. But for some, there was no getting around it. We needed actual humans in the office to look after our servers and critical company infrastructure. In terms of how they transitioned, I guess primarily three or four factors, I should say, have um, kind of worked well uh, to get people from office into a productive or an effective work from home environment. So yeah, technology, ergonomics, communications were also key. 
continuous and consistent, positive, strong messaging right from top. In a sense, uh, a uniform messaging that these are difficult times, health is your priority. Also, it was important for uh, the Mumbai Pune offices to have stable and you know continuous infrastructure. So we put their 24-7 security and technical support because you know laptop reboots or machine reboots someone has to be in the office to kind of help employee do that or any issue in terms of our server rooms or comms rooms some of our staff i mean employees also catered to their food lunch needs they kind of ensured that these guys were getting lunch and dinner and stuff so it was amazing uh, bentley to see that level of you know care that was shown concern that everyone uh, not just employees or you know fen- friends and family for colleagues globally ravi had a lot more to say on the home working transition the number of different moving pieces that needed to fall into place made that transition all the more impressive and through all of it the logistics the procurement the it sitting behind it were human workers with human needs and as the pandemic dragged on there have been some upsides like less time commuting or seeing more of your kids and loved ones but for many colleagues especially those that live away from their families or on their own the isolation has become increasingly difficult to manage msci mumbai pune 2 right which is a, a new addition the average age is is almost like early 30s i guess right i mean hr would have the precise number but and then these are all millennials most of them and uh, the offices super vibrant and you know there's an amazing positive buzz on the both floors we occupy two floors so uh, so yeah people started missing office driving to my office having my coffees and you know uh, lunches with my colleagues all those informal gossip and all the grape wine uh, or friday evenings going up to you know clubs and having dinners outside movie plans everything got got disturbed right so so that slowly started hitting everyone and uh, but then again as i said the pandemic also showed uh, how well we can stay connected thanks to technology too you know groups started forming you know book reading or coffee virtual coffees or you know virtual uh, parties or whatever everything online or in front of screen but almost giving that feel at least of being connected i had to let ravi get back to it it has been a crazy year since the covid-19 pandemic made itself known whether it was in italy or in france or brazil or mexico or the united states or so many countries where data have been scarce there have been tragic stories throughout incomprehensible numbers and at times hopelessness for now though We wanted to wish our colleagues and friends in India all of the best. We are thinking of all of you in this very difficult time. Truth be told, it's hard to follow on from that story, but our show must go on. On the 22nd of April, Joe Biden announced a quote, new target for the United States to achieve a 50 to 52% reduction from 2005 levels in economy-wide net greenhouse gas pollution in 2030 building on progress to date and by positioning american workers and industry to tackle the climate crisis included in the us government's vision is to create a carbon pollution-free power sector by 2035 and a net zero emissions economy by 
Easy peasy. America's new target was announced at a virtual summit of 40 world leaders and accompanied by a flurry of climate pledge updates from other countries, including Japan, Brazil, and Canada, which, if you're not skeptical, might give you some warm, fuzzy feelings. Especially when you think about how much carbon was saved by hosting a virtual conference for 40 world leaders. But there is more to the story than meets the eye. For starters, it's hard to know how much these country targets should matter to company investors. Because if you're looking to buy or sell shares or bonds from an issuer, it makes more sense to look at those companies' targets, right? Or at least I thought it would, until I spoke to Bavir Shah, out of our London office, who specializes in the ESG of whole countries. Um, yeah, so it's not just about the carbon footprint of the sovereign debt or um, encouraging you know other countries to take action. Obviously, that's a critical part of the NDCs. But for companies, there's, there's a more practical reason of why this actually matters. If you look at when a company is actually trying to calculate its own carbon footprint, um, particularly its scope three, then typically it needs to go up the value chain or go up the supplier chain into you know where those emissions are coming from. And there, there's a domino effect involved as you as you go up the chain and as you go out into the world. And what you find is eventually at the top of that chain is the government and the the price and the pool of green technologies that are actually available to companies to access wherever they're operating. So indirectly, actually, the governments have a very big bearing on how feasible a company's target ends up being or how, how it can actually turn carbon neutral by 2050 or whenever it's committed to. And I think it's particularly important for companies that have operations in emerging markets, um, maybe they have a high headcount or you know, high, high you know, factory bases there, because if a country is not committing into a pledge to, let's say, decarbonize its power sector at an earlier date or to cheapen the price of it, then that directly affects the the pool or the price of options available to, to companies in, in the future as well. So that domino chain effect um, actually means that these NDCs do trickle down to companies as, as well. Right, so nationally determined contributions, or NDCs, matter quite a lot. Because these are, in theory, the bedrock on which a country's economy, green or otherwise, is built. And any companies looking to make carbon reduction plans of their own really depend on national policies, subsidies and infrastructure. So as an investor, it might serve you well to wade into the messy details of climate pledges and targets. And straight up, it is messy. A cocktail of probabilities, conditionals, and projections, spiced with a layer of political will and a dash of economic theory. But what makes this really hard is that countries aren't sticking to the same target language when they're setting their NDCs, which makes them really hard to compare, or measure, or even project. The issue is about standardized targets. Um, so in the US case, it's actually reasonably transparent. Um, there's a, a percentage reduction target and a year attached to it and a base year, which makes it relatively straightforward to work out you know, the numerical amount of emissions that the US is actually committing to in, in 2030. Um, but China sets its target um, in terms of CO2 intensity for each level of GDP. Um, so it's a moving target um, and it depends completely on the level of GDP in those future years. But potentially that can mean that China still meets its target, but by emitting a, a lot more CO2 than, than we might be expecting. Um, and similarly, a lot of the 
NDCs coming from emerging markets are about, you know, the year in which fossil fuels will peak or specific KPIs to do with the energy mix. Um, so you, you run into an apples and pears problem fairly quickly when trying to compare these pledges fairly. Um, and in the case of Mexico and Brazil, um, there's also tricky accounting behind the scenes. So you're seeing the headline target remain unchanged and it still looks pretty impressive. But the, the actual numbers that, that that's linked to um, are, are changing. So in Mexico's case, it actually revised up the BAU growth scenario um, under underneath its pledge, which makes the actual um, emissions pledge um, less ambitious. And in Brazil's case, Brazil actually revised up the amount of emissions it made in the past. <laughs> in 2005, it had made a methodological change in how it calculated that, which in turn again means that the the actual pledge for the future is held against a much uh, much more accommodative starting point. Um, so again, the pledge is actually weakened. That's why I think the these NDCs do need to be compared in a standardized way. Um, otherwise, you're you're really comparing you know apples to to oranges. Apples to oranges, apples to pears, it's no good. And Bavia hit on some crucial differences between country targets. They might vary with GDP, be subject to changes in baseline, or massaged with more forgiving assumptions about their BAU, or business as usual, which basically tells you how much a country would be emitting if it took no action on climate. And it's because of all this variation in target measures that you should expect to hear some version of the phrase warming potential a lot more often basically a way of taking these very targets and boiling them down into something comparable, apples to apples. But as we go deeper into the climate target rabbit hole, I have to warn you that even something as seemingly straightforward as a warming potential has a big fat footnote underneath it. Now Bavir loves this stuff, thankfully. So I got him to explain the differences between two key approaches to calculating warming potential, per capita and fair value. There's no right or wrong answer here, but there are a few methodologies that, that can be used. And, and the starting point of those methodologies is always first to work out a carbon budget, which means you know, how much is the world allowed to emit as a whole um, for a one and a half degree or a two degree or a three degree scenario. The step after that is how do you then share that global emissions budget out? Um, and the per capita approach is quite, um, I would say, unforgiving. Um, it basically says that every single person in the world, irrespective of where they live or which country they're in, um, over the long term should be emitting the, this, the same amount. So in practice, that per capita approach means that um, countries like the US get a very high um, implied temperature. Um, but the advantages of that methodology are that it it helps emerging markets and it's perhaps uh, a bit more accommodative to their, their population growth um, uh, hurdles um, compared to a target that does not incorporate you know, an adjustment for, for population growth. The fair shares method is is slightly different, where it um, allocates a, a budget to each country based upon that entire global carbon budget. But the way in which you do that is is completely variable. Um, but the more sophisticated that fair share method gets, the more controversial it gets. In theory, using a fair shares method, you, you could argue that perhaps the US is already on a one and a half degree pathway because of these type of adjustments that would be made. But on a per capita approach, it would still be quite far away from, from that even one and a half, two or even three degree scenario. So knowing your metrics is important. Understanding which method is being used and why is really important. 
A per capita calculation basically says that all individual people should be emitting the same amount of carbon wherever they live. A fair share calculation is a lot more tricky, because you can include a number of different assumptions depending on how rich some countries are, how much carbon they've emitted in the past, and a whole bunch more. The word fair could therefore be up for a little bit of passionate debate. But at the end of the day, these are all very much hypothetical models of what could happen if each country met its NDC targets or climate pledges. And that leaves us with a big, complicated and messy question of feasibility, which we are not going to tackle today, because I know you all have got some place to be, and we are already neck deep in the technical weeds. But as a parting shot, I did put Bavir on the spot. Because there is a nagging part of me that has seen the speed with which the US has reversed course and reclaimed its climate leadership, rejoined the Paris Agreement, and put down some ambitious targets. And that nagging part is just wondering if all of these positive developments could dissolve again in the face of a new administration or a slight turning of political winds. Compared to the original Paris Agreement, where the narrative was much more about goodwill and, and doing the, the right thing, the summit last week was more about green economy and job creation and trade. And I think that makes it a little bit harder to reverse um, the, the change that, that's already underway. But the other thing is that um, a lot of the NDCs are talking about um, accelerating the decarbonization of the energy mix. And once that change is underway, it's actually relatively difficult to reverse and, and there's no real reason to reverse it. But I think the issue is more um, that the funding to go the extra mile. The, the vulnerability here is that a lot of funding also needs to go towards subsidies for electric vehicles or hydrogen or all of these new expensive technologies, which which could shift in, in a political cycle. And really that extra mile uh, is where there's a little bit of vagueness. Vagueness indeed. Because at some point, these shiny pledges are going to have to start putting rubber to road. And when it comes to climate pledges, there is still a lot to ponder. But maybe the most key places to watch would be how seriously countries are looking to meet their climate ambitions by going that extra mile, way beyond decarbonizing energy grids and into more bold and aggressive changes. But that is a story for another day. At the end of it all, a wily investor with ESG-powered goggles will always know to check the footnotes and to look past the all-caps headlines and into the tiny qualifying statements. Because that is where all the good stuff is. And that is it for the week. A massive thanks to Bavir and Ravi for their time. A very special mention to all of our colleagues in India. We trust that this will find you coping, weathering this dark time, and cultivating hope wherever you can. And to all our listeners, we wish you well for all of the individual challenges you faced and continue to face. We know that some may have found relief in COVID vaccines, but for many, it is a long and uncertain road ahead. Thanks for tuning in and listening to us ramble about ESG. We hope it can bring a little distraction from all the chaos around you. Feel free to drop us a note, subscribe to the show, let us know what you're thinking, if there's anything you'd like us to cover, we are all ears. And if you do like what you're hearing on this show, do yourselves a favor and check out the MSCI Perspectives podcast hosted by the oh-so-charming Adam Bass. I'll leave you with the sweet sounds of his voice as I sign off, bye for now. This is Adam Bass, host of the MSCI Perspectives podcast. With economies reawakening around the world and unprecedented levels of government stimulus, have we roused the long-sleeping inflation beast? Join us this week on Perspectives as we explore the issue 
and the tools available for investors. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.